Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the night Bill Little was killed, where were you at? I was at home with my wife and kids. Do you know who killed Bill Little? Uh, no, I don't. I wish I did. Did you kill Bill Little? I did not. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Little, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Start, I just need to let you know a couple things. One, this interview is being tape recorded. Um, two, I have to read you what is commonly referred to as your Miranda warnings because you are in custody. Jamie, I'd like to know what I'm being charged with first. Well, I will tell you since I'm done reading your Miranda warnings. Jamie, you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yeah. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Do you understand that? Yeah. You have the right to talk to the lawyer and have him <coughs> a question. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. You cannot, but you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, want to be appointed, represent you before any question if you wish. Do you understand that? Yeah. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights, not answer any questions or make any statements. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Jamie, do you understand each of these rights I just explained to you? Yeah. Jamie, you have these rights in mind. Do you wish to talk to me about why you're here today? Well, yeah, I'd sure like to know what I've been arrested for. Okay, no problem. Jamie, you know that for a while, the Bloomington Police Department has been conducting an investigation in the shooting that took place March 31st, 1991 in Bloomington, Illinois. You're aware of that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And you also are aware that in, that in that investigation, your names came up and we've been investigating the possibility of you being involved in that crime. You know that to be true too, is that correct? Yeah. Jamie, we have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Little, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. Well, and that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm here. Well, then there ain't nothing else to talk about, man. If you've got a warrant for my arrest warrant, then that's it. Jamie, there's a lot to talk about. No, there's you, not. You know that. No, there's not. Tech 
Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I met him in sixth grade. I moved to a new town in uh, over Christmas break in sixth grade, and I met Bill almost immediately. And uh, yeah, we were just good friends. Yeah, we were. It was a small town, Leroy, Illinois. It's a population of three thousand. So it's hard not to know anyone in that regard. But uh, Bill was, I mean, I was by far not the only, his only friend. He was a very likable, affable guy. Never, never known him to uh, bully anyone. Uh, Never in fights. We epitomized Generation X, I guess you could say. We, uh. I can't recall him being in any, in any sports, but he wasn't on the, the other end of the spectrum, you know, where he, he got those sort of guys, the dark characters, you know, the druggies and whatnot. He wasn't that either. He was, I know this is just terrible generalization, but he was just Bill. You know, he was just there, never caused any trouble, just did his own thing. And this whole situation with his murder and everything it's he would have been the least likely person that you would have thought this would happen to jacob had the pleasure of knowing bill for almost seven years before his tragic death bill little was born in bloomington illinois on october 12 1972 and his parents ronnie and brenda little divorced when he was young Bill lost his life in an armed robbery on Easter Sunday, 1991. At the time, his mother was living in Florida, and he was living with his father and stepmother, Amy. He was just 18 years old. He was your typical 18-year-old Midwest boy. He had graduated from high school the year before and wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with his life. He had done well in school. He had received a Scholastic Achievement Award and was a member of the Future Farmers of America. He didn't go to college after graduation. Rather, he jumped right into the workforce. In January of 91, Bill got himself a job at the Clark Gas Station, located in the heart of Bloomington at 802 East Empire. The station is gone now. A beauty salon lives in the former service station lot today. The destination is on your right, 802 East Empire Street. Arrived. not a gas station. No, it's not. Was that a cosmetics store? (laughs) Yeah. Did I get the address wrong? I didn't. For some reason, it hadn't occurred to me that 28 years later, the crime scene wouldn't even resemble the old gas station. But everything else in the neighborhood was pretty much the same as it was back in 1991. The residential area and houses to the east, the factory to the west, and the alley that still runs behind what now appears to be a pretty fancy salon. It feels like a quiet, nice neighborhood. In fact, most of Bloomington feels that way. Bloomington is just about exactly what you would expect to find in the heart of the Midwest. Its size is very much relevant. Compared to Chicago, it's a small town, boasting a population of around 75,000 people. 
and when combined with its neighboring twin city, Normal, that number reaches about 100,000. But if you compare that to where I live, in Bridgman, Michigan, population 2,500, it feels like a pretty big town. As I'm in the early stages of my investigation, I need to learn a little bit more about the city itself. I know from online statistics that Bloomington is a relatively safe community. They have their share of crimes, for sure, but very few murders. In a study ranging from 2003 to 2016, it's reported that the average number of murders per year in Bloomington is less than two. In 2015 and 2016, there were no murders at all in the Evergreen City. But I need to know what the town was like back in 1991, the year Bill Little was killed. To get the skinny on the early 90s Bloomington, I reached out to an amazing source of information. Steve Vogel was the head of the largest newsroom in Illinois back in 91, located right in the heart of the heartland in Bloomington, Illinois. He spent 22 years working at WJBC before moving on to work for State Farm Insurance. Since his days at the radio station, Steve has turned to writing. He's published two amazing books, both about notorious crimes in Bloomington. His first New York Times bestseller is titled Reasonable Doubt. The book chronicles the story of a horrific murder in his hometown that resulted in a conviction, an overturned conviction, and ultimately an acquittal. And just this year, Steve's new book, this one he co-authored, was published. The Unforgiven dies into the tragic deaths of two young children in McLean County. If anyone knows Bloomington, it's Steve. So I gave him a call. Well, Bloomington Normal has been one of the uh, state's economic uh, development uh, miracles, I would say. Very rapidly growing back in the early 90s. Uh, the engine was State Farm Insurance, which was, it is headquartered here. And I would say in the 1990s, uh, its workforce grew by about um, 25%. And uh, largest employer today, it employs about 15,000 people. So it's clearly the biggest uh, employer here, uh, a white-collar community. Back then, it was a little more balanced with blue-collar. There was a Mitsubishi auto plant, uh, which has since closed down, but it employed two or 3,000 people at the time. And um, so it was a white-collar town principally. Two uh, universities here, Illinois State University and Illinois Wesleyan University, a community college, Heartland, plus a uh, satellite campus of Lincoln College. So a lot of higher education, two hospitals and the like. It had been um, an interesting time because the community kind of grew up with a couple of very serious crimes in the years leading up to 1991. Now, back then, Bloomington was thought to have uh, a, a pretty low crime rate, and uh, these were these were certainly aberrations. Yeah, very agricultural uh, surroundings. Uh, a lot of crops, soybeans and corn, are grown here. If you want a little historical uh, context, um, Adley Stevenson, probably the best known uh, native of uh, of uh, Bloomington. Normal. Bloomington Normal is a is a adjacent community, so typically we go by Bloomington Normal. And uh, you go back 140 years, and you find a guy by the name of Old Hoss Radburn, uh, a member of baseball's Hall of Fame, who still holds a record for the most wins by a pitcher in a single season, 59. <laughs> he, I think he threw his arm out. Uh, so he's buried in the local cemetery, and uh, and um, and just uh, I guess you'd say baseball's throw away from the grape of Stevenson, the uh, 
Adlai Stevenson II. He was a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, who played an important role in the Cuban Missile Crisis a longer time ago. He, he was the Democrat nominee for president twice in the 1950s. Charles Lindbergh had to ditch his plane here one time. It was about six months before Lindbergh uh, made his famous nonstop flight across the uh, Atlantic. He was piloting an airmail plane back in the days when we had airmail. And the plane ran out of fuel. Good planning, huh? And he had to parachute, parachute out just a couple of miles outside of town. So that's part of our history here. I mentioned uh, manufacturing. Uh, Mitsubishi and Chrysler shared uh, uh, that auto manufacturing plant here. In fact, it was in 91 when Chrysler um, sold its uh, share of what was called Diamond Star Motors back then. It became the Mitsubishi plant, employed a couple thousand workers, and uh, they were making about 200,000 cars a year here back then. But it shut down about four years ago. Now there's a new startup uh, electric vehicle producer uh, called Rivian that's there now. There's been some growth in farm equipment manufacturing. Back in the days of the uh, Little murder investigation, Eureka vacuum cleaners were made here. That no longer is true. So it's been a, a, a balanced manufacturing uh, white-collar community with a lot of higher education. So it's a good family community with a lot of recreational uh, facilities. Uh, the community changed after the Hendricks murders. Uh, I would say up to that point, people went to sleep at night with their doors unlocked. But that changed uh, after a young mother and three children were brutally murdered in their beds. Um, and then we had the liquor store robbery in which three people were shot dead. So I think the community grew up a little bit in that uh, time period. So the community was not shocked by the gas station killing. But as I said before, it, uh, I think it was very weary. Uh, I had gone through a lot. And, and, in, and in a larger context, you know, in early 91, we had the um, uh, Operation, uh, what was the um, Persian Gulf um, Desert Storm, was early early that year. And, uh, on that, and then that very month, uh, we had that Rodney King incident out in Los Angeles. So there was a lot going on in people's heads uh, in, in March of 1991. Mike and I spent two days driving all over Bloomington looking for witnesses to speak to. We found that the area is quite diverse. Not necessarily a lot of racial diversity, but the city itself. We drove through the quaint downtown area, which oozes small town USA. There are large commercial districts, and you don't have to travel very far before you come to nothing. Miles and miles of farmland on both sides of the road. The only thing that breaks up the contour of cornstalks to the east of town are the giant white windmills. So many windmills. In the obituary, he wasn't living with his mom, though. He was living with his dad and his stepmom. What's with all these windmills? I don't know. They're everywhere. They can just go on and on and on and on and on. These are for electricity, right? Like, what the hell What the hell do they have going on in Bloomington that they need all this power for? There's nothing out here but six barns and 5,000 windmills. Yeah, I see a silo over there. Do silos need electricity? Mike and I may have spent a little bit too much time in the car together last week. Once their senior year of high school drifted away from Bill and his friend Jacob, the two friends also began to drift apart. I hung out with him, I believe, two months before the murder. But the things had changed. After graduation, he 
started hanging out more with a person by the name of Danny Hartley, who was from Bloomington, but for reasons unknown to me still to this day, he was with our senior class. It just seemed like he just popped out of nowhere one day and him and Bill became rather tight. I would almost say best friends because they were inseparable after graduation. And Danny knew Bill more than anyone during that period of time between graduation and the murder. Jacob isn't wrong. I can't speak for Bill, of course, but according to Danny Hartley, he and Bill were indeed best friends. In fact, Danny, as far as we know, was the last person that Bill knew to see him alive on the night that he was killed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The night Bill Little was murdered was a typical late March evening in the heartland. It was Easter Sunday. Fair skies and a high of 59 degrees. The sun set at 6.19 p.m., and the skies were dark by a quarter after seven. But Bill started his shift at the Clark Station while the sky was still spring blue at 3 p.m. A young man, a little older than Bill, named Steve Hill, was working the first shift that day. Things were slower than usual, since most of the mainly Methodist families of Bloomington were busy with church and Easter dinners. I actually had the pleasure of meeting Steve Hill at his farm in a neighboring town last week. He was a nice guy and pretty damn cordial considering the fact that a couple of strangers rolled up into his driveway unannounced after he had just finished a long day of work on cable lines. He walked out of his house before we could even get out of the truck. He was wearing work boots, exceptionally scuffed from doing their job, and a volunteer firefighter's t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. His dark hair was just beginning to show some shades of gray, and Steve carried himself like a man not easily spooked. My six foot one, 280-pound tattooed frame didn't concern him one bit. When I told him why we were there, he was happy to talk, but he didn't have the time or the inclination to have a microphone clipped to his shirt. He had supper on the table and half a beer waiting for him inside that was getting warmer by the minute. We ended up chatting in his driveway for over a half an hour. Steve told me that he didn't really know Bill that well. He saw him most days during shift change, and they would exchange a few words, and he said that Bill seemed like a nice kid. Steve doesn't remember anything monumental about that last shift change with Bill. Just the standard turning over of the reins. 
but he did offer some insight into how things worked at the Clark gas station. The first question I had for Steve was, how much money was kept in the drawer? Anytime someone loses their life so senselessly, I always find myself asking the question, how much is a man's life worth? In Bill's case, the answer is about $97. The station did more than $97 worth of business on that Sunday. But according to Steve, the clerks had a set amount of cash that they had to leave in the till, and any time that amount was exceeded by $60, the clerks would remove the excess and dump, that's what they call it, a dump, the money into the floor safe. Only the managers had access to the safe. The entire purpose of the safe dumps was to limit the amount of cash in the drawer, which was intended to deter thieves. The managers at the Clark Station were very strict on this policy because there had been several armed robberies of service stations in Bloomington in the months leading up to Bill's murder. So many so that the Bloomington PD actually created a task force specifically for the purpose of putting a stop to these robberies. And that may have been why Bill didn't want his best friend Danny Hartley to leave the station that night, just moments before he was killed. Danny spoke to police more than once over the years, but in 1999, eight years after Bill's murder, officers sat down again with him, and this time they recorded the interview. The sound quality isn't great, but I think it's best for you to hear Danny, in his own words, recount his final visit with his best friend. There's a reason why you know about this murder, is that correct? Yes. Can you tell me what that is? I was your best friend. Now, whose best friend are you? Bill Little. And he was a person shot? Yes, he was. Now, let's go back to just before he even was shot. Uh, how long has he worked at the park? Oil? Three months. And during those three months' time, did you see him often at that station? Yes, I did, about every day, pretty much every day that he was there. Now, let's go back to the day he was shot, March 31st, which was Easter Sunday. Yes. Were you at that station that day? Yes, I was. And could you tell me about what time you were at that station? Time that I'm positive of is about 730. And how long did you stay? Not long. Few minutes, you know, I was about 10 to 8 that I left. Why were you at the station? I was there every day to help work. We were getting plans to go out to meet some girls after work. Did you have plans for that night? Yes, we did. And so you stayed there to about 8, a little after 8, somewhere around there? About 5 to 8. Okay. A little before 8. Alright. And you left, or where did you go? I went to my mom's. Now, was there anybody else with you at the station? Sean, can't remember her last name. And, uh, now, those four people were there before you left to go get ready for your date? They left with me and came with me, yes. So then you left with these four people. How'd you get to the station? My Honda Civic. What color is it? Silver or gray. Now, when you, when you part your Civic, Honda Civic at the station. Where did you park? If you're on Empire Street looking directly at the gas station, it was right to the right of the boarded up windows. That a car ran through a week before that. Night. So 
So it would be closer to the fence because I believe there was yes, a fence would, that yes. went along the east side mm -hmm. there. Off of the shed and two major gas pumps or tank pumps. Okay, so it was on the east side of the building. Yes. In a parking area or just? Just pulled in out of everybody's way so that other people would become more customers because I wasn't really a customer. Sure. Now while you were there, did you see anybody come in? Not that I remember. There might have been one or two people, but I can't really recall. You don't recall any anybody driving or a motorcycle or a truck or anything like that? You just think there, no, might, there might have been there some might people somebody there. you just don't recall? Maybe. Go ahead, sir. I was there so much. You know, I mean, so many people come and go. I couldn't remember <coughs> if somebody came in or not. Now, while you were there, did you purchase anything? I could have. What would you have purchased if you purchased anything? Um, 12 ounce or what is it, 20 ounce bottle of soda, candy bar, probably a pack of cigarettes, small bills. You would never, you wouldn't have purchased any gas. No. You wouldn't have purchased any big dollar items or anything like that. It would just be a couple bucks here or there yeah, at the moment. Just a few bucks. No more than five, brother. Did you have any conversation with Bill? Yeah. What did you guys talk about? I told him I was going to go home and take a shower so he'd get ready to go out, and he told me not to go to stay there until he was done working and help him close and then he'd go take a, I'd go take a shower. He didn't want me to leave. He didn't want me to leave at all. Did you get a feeling why or anything? No. Uh, he never asked me not to, you know, not to leave and I was just going to leave to go somewhere for that money. And I left anyways. So Danny recalls visiting Bill at the gas station from about 7.30 p.m. until a little before 8 p.m. on the night Bill was killed. He was there with a couple of other friends. Some of their names were redacted from the audio, as you heard. He says that just before 8 p.m., he left to go home to change so that the group could go out that night. But Bill didn't want him to leave. At this point, we have enough information to start to piece together a timeline of events based on witness statements, police reports, and the register tape from the gas station. According to Danny, Bill was still alive when he left sometime shortly before 8 p.m. The register tape shows that between 7.28 p.m. and 7.56 p.m., there were a total of seven transactions. At 7.28, someone purchased $5 in gas. 7.40, 94 cents for candy. 7.45, $3.52 for two packs of cigarettes. At 7.46, $1.76 for one pack of cigarettes. And at 7.48, $3.52 for two packs of cigarettes. Then at 7.53 p.m., a cab driver spent $23.10 on gas and a quart of oil. This is the only customer that was identified by the police because he came forward and gave them a written statement. Then at 7.56 p.m., someone spent $3.52 for two packs of cigarettes. And this is where things get really important. 20 minutes after those packs of cigarettes were purchased, Bill triggered the station's silent alarm. So what happened during those 20 minutes? Danny says that he and his friends were gone at that point, but there were two other witnesses. A man named Jim Osborne told the police that he had been in the station around 7.45 to buy a pack of cigarettes. While he was there, he witnessed two other men inside the station. This seems to be consistent with the register tape. Between 7.45 and 7.48, there were three purchases of cigarettes. It's possible that one of those purchases was by Jim himself, and the other two were from the other two gentlemen that were in the station when he was there. 
And then we have Gerardo Gutierrez. Gutierrez told police that he had been in the gas station at about 8 p.m. to buy gas. While he was pumping his petrol, he noticed a man in the station arguing with Bill. He said that when he went in to pay, Bill seemed very nervous. Bill actually dropped his change as he was handing it to him. But here's the problem. There was no gas purchase on the register tape at 8 p.m. The last purchase of fuel, other than the cab driver, was at 7.28, about 30 minutes prior. But even though we don't show a purchase of gas around 8 p.m., the register tape does appear to be telling us a story. At 7.57 p.m., Bill made a safe dump of $60. That was the standard operating procedure, and it seems safe to assume that he wasn't being held up at that point. It's doubtful that Little would have made that move with a gun to his chest, and just as doubtful that a robber would allow a large portion of his booty to be slid into the land of no return. One minute later, at 7.58 p.m., someone bought a can of pop for 69 cents. Then at 8.05 p.m., someone spent $2.45 on a pack of cigarettes and a can of pop. Everything seems to be going fine at this point. And then we start to see some anomalies on the tape. A minute after the last legitimate purchase, at 8.06, the no-sale button was pushed on the register. Pushing this button opens the drawer. If Gutierrez is to be believed, this no-sale may have been for his purchase of gas. He said that Bill was arguing with someone, and that Bill was so nervous that he dropped his change as he was handing it back to him. Perhaps Bill, feeling threatened by the man in front of him, quickly pressed the no-sale button to get Gutierrez's money and get him out of there which would explain why there is no record of his gas purchase. Six minutes later, the no-sale button is pressed again at 8.12, and then again at 8.15. At 8.16, just 60 seconds later, the alarm company received a notification that Bill had pressed the silent alarm button located under the counter. One minute after that, the police department received the alarm. And a minute later, the dispatch went out to patrolling officers. It's now 8.18 p.m. Officer Jeff Pilo was only nine-tenths of a mile away. He arrived on the scene three minutes later at 8.21, just six minutes after the last no-sale and five minutes after Bill triggered the silent alarm. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What happened during the five minutes between when Bill triggered the alarm and when Officer Pilo arrived on the scene is unclear. There was actually an eyewitness at the Clark station at the time of the murder, putting air in his tires. Jeff Pilo saw Danny Martinez doing just that when he approached the scene from the south. By 1999, a new team of investigators had taken over the case, and they recorded an interview with Officer Pilo. And this is how he remembered that night. What I would like you to do is just give us a 
a narrative on how you approached and what you did on March 31st, 1991 at the uh, gas station where William Little was killed. Call came out of the 1090 at the Clark Station. I have a hold up at 801 East Empire. This is 801 East Empire Street. Responded from uh, Center Chestnut Street, took Center Street South. The Locust went east to Linden, went north. I approached on north on Linden Street. I turned the headlights off, parked in either on Linden Street or in the drive just to the south of the Credit Union on the south side of the road. Got out. There's several parked cars in the parking lot. I walk around the front of the credit union, walk towards the east side of the credit union's parking lot, standing there watching the Clark Station. In the Clark Station parking lot was a older car blue with a male putting air in the tires. As I was watching it, I watched in front of the station. There was no, I couldn't see any movement or anything inside. And the license plate number of uh, blue vehicles in the lot. One of the dispatchers was giving me a hard time about running a plate because leads was down. The male walks from his car towards the station. He stops, looks back towards his car, turns, walks towards the station some more, stops, turns around, goes back to his vehicle. Got in it. Can't remember if he backed out of the lot or did he a U turn and drove out of the lot. He drove westbound on the Empire Street. After he did that, I started walking across the Empire Street on the east side of the lot. I was walking north on the east side of the lot. I was watching the gas station. As that was going on, a pickup truck with two white males pulled up, started getting out of the truck. I told him to get the truck going across the street. Kind of a little argumentative, wanted to know why. About that time, realized, you know, there's a tennis shoe sticking out from behind the counter. I ordered the two to get in the truck, go across the street and wait. Get my weapon. Started looking through the windows from the east side of the building, going towards the west to see if there's visibly anybody in there. No one was in there. I entered the front of the station. Went down, cleared the bathroom. No one was in the bathroom. Came back towards the counter. There's a little storeroom behind the counter area where the tenant was at. See the tenant lying there. Stepped past him and cleared the storage room area. There's no one in it. So I came back up. Opened the front door. One dispatch that it was, I don't know exactly what I said, but basically it was real. A man down. It appears as if, you know, we needed a corner for him. Step back towards the attendant, went around the counter, leaned out, checked for a pulse. First place I checked for his pulse was on his wrist. I couldn't get one. Reached up, checked for a pulse on his neck. Couldn't find one there. Then he, I thought his eye, one of his eyes blinked. And uh, when that happened, I stepped back, 
Officer Paul Williams was at the door now. I told him what I was going to do. I was going to go to my car and get uh, my CPR mask. I took a few can't really remember what I did after that, but I stopped. Uh, you know, I was like, wait a minute, you know, maybe I shouldn't worry about my CPR mask. I turned to go back to the station. So Paul Williams informed me that you know, the young man was dead. There was nothing we could do. Bill Little had been shot twice in the chest. One of the bullets punctured both ventricles of his heart. He would have been dead within a minute of enduring that wound. According to Jeff Pilo, Danny Martinez was parked on the east side of the parking lot when he approached the scene. Pilo witnessed him begin to walk towards the station, turn back to his car, turn again towards the station, and then return to his vehicle. Later in the interview, Officer Pilo expresses that without question, he did not see anyone other than Danny Martinez in the parking lot that night. And Martinez's recollection matches up with Pilo's exactly, with the exception of one major detail. At that time I was putting in a tire I heard my car backfired what I heard backfire and uh, I end up putting uh, finishing putting air in my tire and I start walking to the gas station to get my pop or whatever I was going to the gas for and at that time I saw an individual come out of the gas station backwards I had uh, walked maybe a couple steps and I heard my car was about to die or backfire, and I turned around. And when I turned around to go back to the gas station, I had ran into someone, and he was kind of uh, shocked to see me there. Um, and then he walked around the corner. Like when I was going towards the building, I heard someone say, "Hey, back up!" And I turned around, and there was an officer across the street at the credit. Martinez and Pilo both recall the back and forth between the car and the station. But Martinez says that he came face to face with Bill's killer that night. Pilo says that didn't happen. But the thing about Danny Martinez is that his story evolved over time. The interview that you just heard was recorded in 1999. And it's quite a different version of events from what he described eight years earlier. But that's a story for another day. There was a lot going on in Bloomington, Illinois, and around the world back in 1991. The quiet town was most definitely on edge. Local law enforcement and prosecutors, and I would say to a very large extent, the whole community was uh, emotionally, psychologically exhausted, just plain spent when the uh, Bill Little murder occurred. Just uh, three days before the, that murder occurred, uh, what is probably this community's highest profile crime investigation ever, ended with a not guilty verdict in the second trial of a husband and father who was once convicted of the Axon butcher knife murders of his wife and three children. This was a matter that uh, had been in the local news since 1983 with a conviction in 84, uh, that conviction being overturned by the state Supreme Court six years later, and then Hendricks, uh, David Hendricks' acquittal just three days before the Billy, uh, for the Bill Little killing. And then overlay that with what had been developing in another case, what we call the SNS liquor store case, in which three people were shot and killed 
in the course of a 1988 robbery. After um, a better than two-year investigation, police made an arrest in that case on March 11th of that year, roughly two weeks before the little killing. So, in the course of roughly two weeks, you finally had an arrest in a triple murder investigation. You had a man once convicted of brutally slaying his family walk out of the courthouse a free man. And then you have the murder of a gas station attendant, uh, a community of roughly 100,000 at that time. You can see why I think prosecutors and police were psychologically, uh, if not physically exhausted, emotionally drained. Uh, I'd say just plain weary. I know I was. And I think the community was, too. I think the police are always under pressure to, to solve cases. And, and uh, as, uh, as you know, there are several cases in the logs here that uh, have, have raised the issue of whether police were too quick to jump to uh, conclusions and, and arrest somebody. Certainly not the case in uh, the little case. It took a long time for them to make an arrest. Even though, even today, of course, it's it's controversial whether they got the right guy. In terms of how the community felt about it, uh, I think um, there was good interest and awareness of the of uh, of the interest in, in in keeping a clear vision into gas stations so people could police and others could see what was going on in these retail establishments, particularly at the nighttime hours. But in terms of how much pressure there was on police. Uh, I don't know if it was specific to the little case or just the fact that Bloomington had had a real spate of multiple murders that made people worry about what was happening to our community. 28 years later, the case of Bill Little's tragic murder is still shrouded in mystery. And apparently, it's not just Bill's case. For a town that averages about two homicides a year, there have been a considerable number of questionable convictions in Bloomington over the years. Now I can I can talk about the cases that have been suspect over the last few years if you want me to. Uh, for, let's begin with the Hendricks case. Uh, still, a lot of people believe David Hendricks is guilty of the axe and butcher knife slayings of his wife and children, but also a lot of people who believe police were quick to uh, jump to him as the, the sole and principal suspect. Uh, he was convicted in 1984. The Supreme Court overturned the conviction in 1990. He was acquitted in the second trial the next year. Uh, we have the Jennifer Lockmiller case, uh, a local co-ed found strangled to death in 1993. Uh, Alan Beeman was convicted of the killing. He was sentenced to, I think, 50 years in prison and served... I think about 13 of them before the Illinois Supreme Court reversed that conviction. And then a few years after that, the governor pardoned him. Uh, he has a, Beeman has a civil suit pending against three former detectives uh, accusing them of uh, conspiracy and uh, malicious prosecution. Uh, we have the case of Donald Whalen. Uh, this was a case that occurred later in 1991. Uh, he was convicted of killing his father. And uh, he had served 27 years of a 30-year sentence uh, when just, just earlier this year, a judge looked at some new evidence there and decided Whalen should get a new trial. So he's out of prison, free in a million-dollar bond, uh, while the, the state appeals the judge's decision ordering a new trial. That murder occurred, I think, just a month after the little killing. 
Yeah, there are people who worry about that. They talk about it in the context of the Hendricks case, the Lock Miller case, and now the Whalen case. And I suspect, uh, with your help, the Snow case as well. The case of Bill Little's murder is a far cry off from resolved. The prosecution found a suspect, two in fact, tried them both, one was acquitted, and one was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Some believe that the police got the right man, and many people believe that a terrible injustice has occurred. At this point, I can't pretend to know which is accurate. The only way to know for sure is to go back to the beginning reinvestigate this case with fresh eyes with your eyes we have a long road to hoe ahead of us and I ask that as we move forward we never lose sight of the victim let's not let Bill Little's memory get lost in this process it is our duty to be his voice because his was taken away from him Bill Little was only 18 years old he had his whole life ahead of him He would have been 46 years old today if his life hadn't been stolen from him over less than $100. His death affected everyone around him. He was loved by his friends and family alike. It was a young person's funeral, you know. Somber. There was quite a few friends from school there. I remember approaching his dad and uh, tried speaking with him, but he, he was a total wreck. I don't even think he recognized me. Yeah. Yeah. And my, actually, uh, my mother's sitting right here at the table with me. She was there. And uh, she just recalled that his mother was also just inconsolable, not even communicating. I'm asking for you, all of you, to join me today in committing to this mission. To find the truth. To figure out once and for all who killed Bill Little on Easter Sunday, 1991. Together, hopefully, with any luck, we can find real justice for Bill, his family, and for Bloomington. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash Truth and Justice. 
On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been truth and justice.